On January 5th, 1793, a group of Aravapai Apaches arrived at the gates of Tucson. The arrival of Apaches coming into the area was nothing new. Just a decade prior, a large band of some 500 had come to the area and commenced an assault on the still-new Presidio. But this group did not come to pillage, raid, or kill the inhabitants. Instead, they had come to settle among them. This band was reacting to a new Spanish policy aimed at turning the once intractable foe into a peaceful neighbor. You can probably imagine the trepidation of the soldiers as their captain negotiated the terms. After all, the Apaches had proven to be consummate tricksters. Another group had used a tactic exactly like this to wipe out an Odom settlement just seven years earlier. But rather than being yet another bluff and a continuation of relentless hostilities that went back centuries, this was, in actuality, a new chapter. And, for the briefest of moments, the frontier would find peace. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 12, Peace by Purchase. Of course, peace is still a good 15 years away from where we left off last week. To get there, the Spanish would once again be rocked by revolts and attacks all along its northern flank. And the revolt that was the most surprising, and probably did the most damage, cropped up in the most unlikely of places, among the Quechans. As we talked about last week, Quechan leader Salvador Palma was solidly in the Spanish camp. He had been baptized a Christian, met with the Viceroy of New Spain, and arranged for Spanish settlements near his people. For Palma, this was a good deal to procure access to Spanish goods and be on the best terms with the big kids on the block. For the Spanish, this meant that the road to California, so recently broken by Anza, was officially a go. Friar Francisco Garces still dreamt of his more northern route across to Arizona, but he was completely shot down in favor of the Colorado crossing south of the Gila. In 1779, he, quote, practically was ordered to Yuma, end quote, in the words of historian James H. McClintock. He arrived with two soldiers and was joined in October of the same year by Padre Juan Diaz and ten more soldiers. The following year, 1780, a soldier named Ensign Santiago de Islas began recruiting in Tucson and Tubac for volunteers to join him and his wife in settling among the Quechans. Islas and his company would arrive at the Colorado in December 1780, and by January 1781, two settlements were up and running. The first was La Misión de la Purísima Concepción, built across the river from present-day Yuma on the later site of Fort Yuma. The next was five leagues upstream called San Pedro y San Pablo de Bicunier. Quoting another source, early state historian Thomas Farish describes these settlements as neither pure missions, presidios, or pueblos, but, quote, a mongrel affair nobody can manage, combining features of all three such establishments, end quote. These mongrel establishments would be overseen by only four priests, 22 soldiers on detached duty from other presidios, and 20 colonizing families. To understand why such a vital spot was not given the full presidio and mission treatment, we have to look at the pressures being put upon Teodoro de Croix, the Commandant General for the Interior Provinces. Croix had a lot on his plate, including dealing, as always, with bold Apache raids. 
but also remember that he is only two degrees away from taking orders directly from the king himself. So when word reached him from his superior, Secretary of the Indies José de Galvez, he had to jump into action. Such was the case in 1779, when Galvez announced a new order from Carlos III to not make war with the Apaches and other hostiles. It seems the king was trying to figure out his legacy and wanted to emulate Felipe II's 1573 comprehensive ordinances for new discoveries. In short, as historian John L. Kessel writes, he wanted to be remembered as a humanitarian, not a conqueror. So the advice coming from the king through Galvez was to give up an offensive war and concentrate on defense, while also trying to win tribes over with gifts and trade. And, oh, by the way, Galvez informed him, there's not much money for wars or really anything else in the budget anyway. Turns out that Carlos III had decided to ally himself with France in a fight against Great Britain, ostensibly to help out those plucky American tax dodgers, but really to take advantage of a chance to poke Great Britain in the eye and take back some of the territory Spain lost after the Seven Years' War. Facing this fiscal reality, Qua was in full-on penny-pinching mode. It shouldn't matter, he wrote Galvez, because Ansa and Garces had assured me that the Yumas are a docile people, and, quote, not many years will pass until the banks of the Rio Colorado may be themselves covered with grain fields, fruits, and herds, and settled with faithful vassals of the king, end quote. As Kessel also writes, this vision only existed in the commandant general's head. Strapped for cash, what eventually arrived at the settlements along the Colorado was nothing close to what Palma was expecting. Based on the grand promises made by Ansa and Garces, he and his people were expecting food, clothing, and Spanish weapons. They wanted more of the beads, tobacco, and other goods given to them by Ansa's previous expeditions. So, like a kid getting underwear for Christmas, the Yumas gritted their teeth as promised presents never materialized. Add to this the old problems that cropped up any time the Spanish set up shop near a native settlement. The priests were overbearing and resentful of native ways, and so many new mouths to feed, along with their animals, were depleting the resources. McClintock also gives the standard line about brutal and licentious soldiers and claims, though I can't find this anywhere else, so take this with a grain of salt, that Palma himself at one point was humiliated by being placed into stocks. It didn't help that by summer 1781, a large group of settlers bound for Los Angeles passed through. Now, the majority of the settlers did just that, passed through and made it to their destination. However, a small contingent of soldiers and several hundred horses and mules stopped there to allow the animals to get into better shape. This group was led by none other than Captain Francisco Javier Rivera y Moncada, Anza's old nemesis from California. Just to add to the drama and emulate a tired action film cliché, Rivera y Moncada had asked Qua to retire once he finished this one last job. The dam finally burst on Tuesday, July 17, 1781. While officiating mass, Garces and another priest heard frenzied yells. The questions had risen up and were clubbing to death anyone they could find. Down at San Pedro y San Pablo de Bicunier, the two priests officiating mass were swiftly killed, one being beheaded by an axe. His decapitated head was mounted on a pole and carried by natives as they headed up the river. 
the altar vessels and sacred images from the church were thrown into the Colorado. Back at Concepcion, Garces and the priests with him were not immediately killed, and it is said that they went about to as many dying Spaniards as they could in order to hear confessions and administer last rites. Across the Colorado at his camp, Rivera y Moncada had made a last stand, but he and the soldiers with him were eventually overrun and killed. Palma appears to have used what influence he could to take Garces and his fellow priest into custody, but two days later, on July 19, 1781, a former servant and interpreter was able to whip up enough vitriol to have both of them executed. In total, the death count stands at more than 100 people who were brutally killed by the put-upon questions. Among these were Ensign Santiago de Islas, who had encouraged others to settle there from Tubac and Tucson. He was one of those killed and pushed into the Colorado to be washed away. Other victims included Manuel Barraga, his wife Francisca, Juan Romero, and Francisco Castro, all of whom had been prominent citizens at Tubac. News of the attack slowly trickled its way back to Sonora through survivors. McClintock relates that a single man was sent to verify the massacre, and ended up joining the body count once he got there. Though a couple of sources mentioned punitive expeditions later in 1781, and again the next year, these eventually produced nothing. The major follow-through was Lieutenant Colonel Pedro Fages, who, under orders from Qua, negotiated the ransom of 74 captives. McClintock includes a fanciful story that these ransom prisoners told Fages that the natives had moved eight leagues down the river because every night since the massacre, a ghostly procession was seen circling the church with candles and a cross before vanishing. It's hard to overstate the impact this had on future Spanish plans for the vital river crossing. Remember that Anza himself said that if the Quechans were enemies, his own route to California would be impossible. In the words of historian David J. Weber, the massacre turned California into an island, and Arizona into a cul-de-sac. Garces's route through Hopi territory had proven a bust, and now the one known road from Sonora to the Pacific coast was gone. Speaking of Garces, he would actually receive a proper burial after the whole massacre thing. The padre, who initially was loved for his native-like ways, had met his end among his converts. He had been in the Pimaria Alta for 13 years and helped break as much trail as Ansa. State historian Marshall Trimble probably summed it up best with a quote from Garces himself. Quote, We have failed. It's not because we hadn't tried. It's because we have not understood. End quote. In the aftermath, the Franciscans placed the blame squarely on Qua for his penny-pinching, and Qua blamed them and Ansa right back for misrepresenting the situation and the docility of the Quechans. But, as one historian put it, the disaster might have been unavoidable, but was helped along by poor timing, poor planning, and the government's attention being focused elsewhere. Farish also adds this last flourish, quote, The logic of events showed the whole business to be criminal stupidity, ending in a bloody catastrophe. End quote. One of the reasons Qua and others couldn't immediately follow up with the questions was because so many resources were already being expended in the never-ending defense against the Apaches. In 1780, so a year before the questions went into revolt, these relentless foes had grown bolder. 
In March 1780, they killed Tucson veteran Captain Miguel de Urrea near the Sonoran town of Altar. Just a month later, they carried out what might be their most ambitious attack yet. Dressed as Spanish soldiers, including hats, long leather jackets, and muskets, they swooped down on a large group of surprised Odom people living along the Gila River. By the time the attack was all said and done, 120 were dead or taken captive. Just to drive home the point, in June 1780, the chaplain of the Tucson Presidio, Father Francisco Perdegon, was killed while heading south towards Arispe. He was in ill health and was heading south to recuperate when he was ambushed. The priest who addressed Perdegon's body for burial remarked that there was hardly a spot on it without a wound. Though they mainly limited themselves to swift and brutal guerrilla-style tactics, in 1782, the Apaches did try to storm the Tucson Presidio en masse. On May 1st, several hundred attacked the still under-construction walls of the Presidio. Captain Allende y Saavedra and 20 men made a stand at the front gates, while soldiers who had been outside the walls at the time of the attack caught the hostile Apaches in something of a crossfire. Eventually, the Apaches were forced to withdraw, leaving behind a shaken populace. Remarkably for how these things tend to go, no one from the Presidio was killed. However, Allende y Saavedra was badly wounded, along with two other soldiers. After this assault, called the May Day Attack, the walls went up a wee bit quicker, though they were still not completed until the end of 1783 and they were up just in time for another attack on March 21, 1784, when 500 Apaches descended on Tucson. This force killed five soldiers and stole 150 horses. Two officers and a cohort of soldiers, civilians, and Odom gave chase, eventually killing 17 enemies. The two officers would actually receive promotions from the king himself for this daring exploit. Allende y Saavedra would take the fight to the Apaches in more than a dozen campaigns between 1783 and 1785, telling the king in a report that he had decorated the palisades of the Presidio with many Apache heads. He was still racking up wounds, but proudly said that, despite the pleadings of his men, he never backed down from a fight. It must have been with a heavy sigh of relief that Qua left his post as Commandant General of the Interior Provinces in 1783, heading to the much cushier job as the Viceroy of Peru. But before we let him get away, I want to rewind a few years and talk about one last giant headache of his, mainly because it will play into the upcoming about-face in Spanish policy. And for that, we need to turn back once again to our old friend, Juan Bautista de Anza. Because as he took over his new job as the governor of New Mexico, Anza would have to deal with that other great native menace, which I have neglected so far because they were more of a New Mexico problem. I am talking about the Comanches. The Comanches first entered the Spanish written historical record in 1706, but the residents of New Mexico were obviously well aware of them by that time. They appear to have split off from the related Shoshone people in Wyoming in the 1600s and had descended into the Great Plains, where they thrived. Once again, please keep in mind that I am not an anthropologist or an ethnologist, so forgive me if I oversimplify things by saying that the Comanches had developed something of a warrior culture. With a very Klingon-esque view of battle and honor, the Comanches saw making war or raids on neighbors as a way of both 
establishing who was best fit to lead and to ensure they had the necessary goods to survive. Throughout most of the 1700s, in New Mexico and Texas, they would play much the same role that the Apaches played in Arizona. In fact, this was the group that was pressing the eastern Apache tribes to move further west. Along with being the perennial nightmare of frontier settlers, they also were noted for their quick adaptation to, and use of, horses. The Comanches loved horses, and the mobility these animals gave them were right in line with their views on war and quick raids. The animal became so important to their culture that you can translate the Comanche word for horse as the god dog. They were constantly raiding to acquire more animals. In this too, they were mirrored by the Apaches, who considered a raid to acquire horses as a necessary rite of passage for boys to become men. It was these horse lords that Anzo was told to bring to heel and into peaceful alliance with Spain. In 1779, Secretary of the Indies Galvez had sent down provisional orders saying that military commanders should try to establish peace and alliances wherever possible, and, in a remarkable reversal of previous policy, even offer them firearms in trade. From his experience in Arizona, Anza had come to believe that the carrot was way more effective than the stick when dealing with the natives. However, he also realized that you also had to whap them with that stick hard enough to keep them from just stealing the carrots. Before he could make any sort of agreement with the Comanches, he had to earn their respect in their domain of war. Otherwise, the Comanches would break treaties as they had before to go back to their usual lifestyle. Now, every movie out there involving a gang of some kind teaches one very important lesson. You have to find the biggest, toughest guy and beat him in order to have any street cred. In this case, the guy to beat was Cuerno Verde. Cuerno Verde, or Greenhorn, is the name the Spanish used for this Comanche chief, based on a distinctive headdress that contained green-tinted horns. It appears that Cuerno Verde was also a title, and the previous person to wield the moniker had been killed in 1768 during a battle at Ojo Caliente in New Mexico. In the intervening decade or so, the new Cuerno Verde, who happened to be the son of the previous one, had proven himself to be just as much of a scourge. As the toughest guy in the yard, this is who Anza decided he needed to smash in order to bring the Comanches down a sufficient number of pegs. In August 1779, Anza led a group that would eventually consist of 800 soldiers and native allies, up from Santa Fe into present Colorado. In early September, between Colorado Springs and Pueblo, his troops would have their first encounter with the Comanches. He was able to set up an ambush in a narrow canyon, catching the enemies completely by surprise. Running skirmishes continued, but Anza was finally able to surround and cut down Cuerno Verde and his guard. The distinctive headdress was sent along to Qua as proof of the accomplishment. You also sometimes see it that this headdress was then sent to Carlos III, who gave it to the Pope, and should be in the Vatican to this day, but from what I can find, that's an unsupported anecdote, and it doesn't appear in the Vatican archives. With Anza's surprising success against the Comanches, which will eventually lead in several years to a peace with the nation, Qua also tapped in with another impossible demand. Yep, for the one millionth time, Spain wanted to bring the Hopis back into the fold. And, funny enough, Anza did it. Well, 
sort of, kind of. You see, the intervening years had not been kind to the Hopis since Garces was sent packing back in 1776. Years of prolonged drought had forced many to descend from their mesas, to scratch out whatever they could from the desert floor. Some accounts even have them selling children to get enough provisions just to get by. In this weakened state, they were also being harassed by some predatory neighbors such as the Navajos and the Utes. Originally, Ansa received all this intelligence and wanted to get out the giant club he had used to smash up the Comanches. However, the word from Kwa was a firm no to military force. The king is a good and peaceful humanitarian, remember? So, no war. Get it done through talks. Over and out. With these marching orders, he considered his options. Finally, he struck upon an offer. If the Hopis would accept Catholicism, anyone who wanted to could move to the pueblos along the Rio Grande. The icing on the cake? Aside from being faithful Christians, he promised no strings attached to missions or presidios. They could just live. In September 1780, Ansa made a journey to see the Hopis. Originally, he wanted to take along Escalante, the young priest who was so scandalized by them back in 1775, but the always frail priest had died just before the news reached him. Arriving at their mesas, he found the situation exactly as had been described to him. With some dismay, he noted that the population had dropped from roughly 8,000 to around 800. Some of the chiefs refused him on the offer to relocate, preferring death in their traditions to life as Spanish Christians. This Anza accepted, but kept the offer open for anyone who wished to take it. Some 200 people would eventually relocate to New Mexico. The governor did note that smallpox was again plaguing the Hopis, and he was sure that it would eventually wipe them all out. Spoiler, obviously that's not going to happen. But it appears this was part of a truly horrible smallpox epidemic ravaging much of the interior provinces between 1779 and 1781, down in Tumacocri, the priest buried one out of every ten converts in a five-week period. The place was resembling something of a ghost town anyway. By 1783, only three Spanish families are listed as residing there. That's better than Tubac, where only Odom residents are listed by that point. It's during this same period that Anza and Qua also try to open a new route between Arispe and Santa Fe, something that would break the stranglehold that Chihuahuan merchants had on goods flowing into New Mexico. The expedition, which left on November 9, 1780, made it to Orispe on December 18th, but only managed to upset local Apache tribes, which made the route impractical. And it's shortly after everything we discussed today that a novel idea was made official Spanish policy. Instead of trying to beat the natives into submission, a costly and ineffective task, the Spanish commanders were simply to buy them off. The idea was the brainchild of Bernardo de Galvez, the nephew of Secretary of the Indies José de Galvez, who was made Viceroy of New Spain in 1786. His instructions of 1786 were not all that new. After all, Anza had been using parts of it up in New Mexico for all his dealings with the natives. However, it was an extraordinary change in official Spanish policy, reshaping the standing orders of how to deal with hostile natives. The instructions basically came down to three parts. 1. Keep fighting the most irascible enemies. If the Apaches want war, keep giving it to them. 2. Divide and conquer. 
exploit weak points of intertribal relationships by targeting old grievances, tribal rivalries, and anything else that would split them up. The vanquishment of the heathen, Galvez wrote, consists in obliging them to destroy one another. 3. Induce them to settle down with gifts, gifts, and more gifts. The war with Britain ended in 1783, freeing up money in the treasury to make this more than just a mere promise. However, here too Galvez hoped to exploit weakness. The natives liked Spanish goods, including liquor and firearms. Cynically, the orders were that groups which took Spain up on the offer were to be given, quote, defective firearms, strong liquor, and such commodities as would render them militarily and economically dependent on Spain, end quote. The instructions of 1786, also known as Peace by Purchase, would, like Ruby's regulations of 1772, become Spanish policy throughout the rest of the colonial era. In late 1785, envoys from the Comanches arrived in New Mexico to ask for peace and an alliance. In 1786, Anza, who now had plenty of street cred from his showdown with Cuernal Verde, accepted their offer under generous terms. After nearly a century of warfare, the Comanches were no longer a threat. As for the Apaches, well, they were the Apaches. A group of Chiricahuan Apaches had settled near the Presidio at Bacoachi in 1786, so that's why when more showed up at Calabasas on October 1st, the Pima residents let their guard down. However, this was merely a ruse, and the Apaches wound up killing two Pimas before looting the place and heading off. The new commander of the Tucson Presidio, Captain Pedro Romero, sent 54 men into the field to retaliate. This force was able to track the Apaches southwest of Nogales and wound up killing four of them before capturing the stolen loot. This attack, though, was the last straw for the Odom at Calabasas, who abandoned it. The settlement was a visita of the mission at Tumacacri, the only one left by this time. Now the mission stood by itself. And that's why you can forgive the temporary commander of Tucson, Lieutenant Jose Ignacio Moraga, of maybe being cautious when approached by the Apaches in 1793 about settling near Tucson. But orders came down to accept the proposal, and Moraga, who incidentally is the brother of Anza's faithful Lieutenant Moraga, who founded San Francisco, gifted the Apaches with sugar and a set of clothes for their leader, Natel Nietzsche. Nietzsche, meanwhile, gifted Moraga six sets of ears. Though a grizzly trophy, they were from enemy Apache groups and a symbol of Nilche's new loyalties. Two weeks later, these Apaches would be gifted 50 head of cattle to help them in their new life. This worked, and it wouldn't be too long before there were more than 100 Apaches living in the area, becoming what the Spanish called Apaches Mansos, or Tame Apaches. There's going to be more ups and downs, but overall, the peace-by-purchase policy brought a level of stability to the Pimaria Alta unthinkable just a decade previous. Places such as Tucson and Tubac suddenly weren't under the constant fear of attack. Okay, well, not under the constant fear of attack as much. The frontier could still be a harsh place, but with some Apaches now becoming allies instead of swift and deadly predators, it allowed for a small population growth. And that's what I want to focus on next week. So join me then as we close out the 18th century and take some time to explore life in the old Pueblo and at Tubac. 
Because, given what happens after the turn of the century, this last decade is pretty much as good as it will get for a while. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.